the Coptic Magical Papyri Podcast. Dear listeners and magic enthusiasts, welcome to our second podcast episode. Today we are going to be talking with Dr. Dylan Burns about Gnosticism and Coptic Magical Texts. Dylan Burns is one of the leading experts in Gnosticism. He earned his BA at Reed College, where he began his research on Neoplatonism and earned an MA in Religious Studies from the University of Amsterdam. Early Christianity and Gnosticism, especially Gnostic texts discovered in Nag Hammadi, occupied the bulk of his doctoral studies at Yale University. He currently serves as project manager of the database and dictionary of Greek loanwords in Coptic at the Free University of Berlin, where he is working as part of a team putting together the groundwork for a dictionary of Greek loanwords in Coptic. Dylan Burns is also co-managing editor of Nag Hammadi and Manichaean Studies and co-chair of the steering committee of the International Society of Biblical Literature's program unit Nag Hammadi and Gnosticism. He is author of Apocalypse of the Alien God and of a new book forthcoming later this, this year called Did God Care? Providence, Dualism and Will in Later Greek and Early Christian Philosophy. I hope that you will enjoy our second podcast episode. States, but I've been in Germany now for seven years and Europe for a good deal longer. And I'm also a, a European by citizenship. I'm a scholar of religion, history, and philosophy, and where these things all meet, and a specialist for the Nagamadi codices, which are a group of 12 codices and pages from a 13th that were discovered in Upper Egypt in December 1945. Why are these books interesting? Why did I become a, a specialist for them? They're filled with forbidden literature from the early church that changes all of our ideas about early Christianity and later ancient philosophy. And They're written in a very beautiful language called Coptic, which is the youngest or last stage of the Egyptian language. So when I discovered this literature, I fell in love with their strange and interesting contents, and also with the strange and interesting language in which they are written. And now I am employed by the Freie Universität Berlin in West Berlin, where I am project manager for a project called the Database and Dictionary of Greek Loanwords and Coptic. Coptic is not like Greek or Latin or Chinese uh, language that uh, has been used widely all over continents and with the strongly established philological or literary traditions. Rather, uh, Coptic is still being studied And, and understood. And there are large parts of Coptic vocabulary and grammar we're still trying to figure out. So the project I'm co-leading in Berlin is helping us understand this neglected language a little bit better. Um, what does your daily academic life look like? What are the tasks you tackle on the daily? Right now I have 
a research job. So for people who are more familiar with the natural sciences or so-called hard sciences, I run a lab. We have funding from the German Research Council to, over the course of 12 years, put together our database and dictionary of Greek loan words and Coptic. And we have a team that is assembling the data that we will use in making this dictionary. We're getting closer and closer to the end of the project to where we actually write the dictionary. That comes very soon. So a lot of my time is spent putting together this data, but also leading the team, making sure that everything is functioning smoothly, that uh, the work is proceeding according to the pace that we have set out, that the quality of the work is high, planning out new trajectories for the work. This is what it means to, to run a lab and try to see a research project from the beginning to the end. Another big part of my research job is to do my own research on uh, later Greek philosophy and religion and life in the ancient Mediterranean world. Universities today submit their results, that is the number of things which they publish, number of projects which they complete, number of students which they have to the seminars to governments so that governments can see what it is they're actually doing. This is how universities show that they're using the funding that they receive from taxpayers and, and also from endowments here, not in Europe. And a big part of what researchers do is contribute to that by writing and publishing and organizing a lot. A third aspect of the job is, of course, traveling and going to conferences and networking and meeting with other scholars. This is very important. A big part of how all scientific work proceeds is to exchange perspectives, to disagree productively, rethink what you used to think based on how other people criticize your work, to offer criticism, useful criticism of other people's work. This is how we all get further, by exchanging ideas and uh, seeing what, what holds up when we present our ideas to other people and, and what not. So uh, traveling and lecturing and presenting research abroad, that's, that's very important. It's very important. Um, so you said that you started with Proclus. And what, what sparked your interest there? Oh, I have a funny story of how I got into this whole business. So I had no interest in the Greeks or the Egyptians or any of this stuff when I began university. Although I did have some books on these things when I was a small child, and I can thank my parents for getting me interested in everything. So perhaps it goes back to that. But when I was 18, I didn't think I was going to do this. What I was interested in was Asia. I spent high school studying Japanese. And by the time I was 19 years old, I could read a Japanese newspaper and hold a conversation in Japanese. I, was, I worked very hard on it. I was really into it. It was a big hobby for me. And I thought it was going to become my career. And due to a scheduling mishap in my first year of university, I had to drop my advanced Japanese course 
and take a course instead on worlds of early Christianity, which was a subject for which I had no interest whatsoever, until I actually showed up and went to a lecture. And maybe it was seeing the historicization of all of these things that we think we know about the Bible and Jesus and the early Christian movements and how this stuff affects us today. Or maybe it was just that I, we had a very good teacher who was a charismatic and terrific lecturer, but I was fascinated by this material. And in the second week of the seminar, he gave a lecture on the Gospel of John, which focused on the recognition stories, which are unique to the Gospel of John, the woman at the well, the blind man. These are people who you would not expect to recognize Jesus to be the Son of God, but they do. And the question this lecturer asked is, why do they recognize him and other people don't? Ah, because they knew him already. From the world which is prior to this world, the world from which we all come, the heaven where we have light sparks which fell down into this present cosmos of darkness. That's where they knew him from. And that is what we're going to talk about the following Monday. <laughs> so that was a Friday. And I remember going, I remember going to lunch. It was, it was a lovely clock lecture. And I remember going to lunch and picking up my smoothie. I think I was going to have a smoothie for lunch. I remember staring at this smoothie, this mango smoothie on, on a tray at the Menza and thinking, I don't really understand what this man was talking about. But what I do know is I want to know more. <laughs> so I became interested in these later ancient religious philosophies about the pre-existence of the soul and the relationship of the soul to matter. And I think it's not a coincidence that at the time I also had a good philosophy teacher. So we were learning all about Plato. And this stuff is very big for Plato. Plato teaches that heaven, that ideas are real, heaven is made of ideas, that the soul is real, that the soul existed before the body. A lot of the stuff this teacher was talking about with the Gospel of John was a very platonic reading of this gospel. And what else, the other thing he was doing was, of course, giving what we would today call a Gnostic reading of the Gospel of John. The way he explained these episodes of the blind man and the woman at the well are, are straight from Gnostic exegesis from the early church. That got me very interested in Gnosticism. So um, before diving in more into the relationship between Gnostic texts and magical texts, let's have a closer look at Gnosticism, as you have suggested. For some, this term is problematic. Could you explain why and what is your stance towards using the term? Sure thing. So what is Gnosticism anyways? As scholars have argued, especially in the last 25 years, a lot of people, and especially theologians and historians, have used the language of Gnosticism or Gnostic to describe anything that is weird or heretical or other in ancient Mediterranean religion and also in, in modern religion and philosophy. So there's a large extent to which it's a kind of negative category and a way of pushing something away, saying, well, that's just heretical. 
right? The Mormons were called Gnostics when they first showed up. Uh, you can read polemics about the Protestant Gnostics written by Catholic counter-reformists. It goes on. All kinds of things have been called Gnostic. So why talk about it at all? Well, where does the word come from in the first place? Gnosticism was coined by the Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore in the 17th century to describe the teachings of the ancient Gnostics. What is a Gnostic? This is uh, an English adaptation of a Greek word, Gnostikos, which is first used by Plato to describe people who have a kind of special scientific knowledge about the cosmos and, and what lies beyond the cosmos, that is, a special metaphysical philosopher. It's a, not a commonly or widely used term in Greek. It's a kind of special terminology that you find in literature, not in documents, not an everyday word. And in the second and third century CE, there were writers who talked about the Gnosticoi. This is people who called themselves Gnostics, the knowers. The most important of these witnesses to the Gnosticoi are Irenaeus of Lyon, a bishop of the later second century CE, and Porphyry of Tyre, a pagan philosopher of the mid third century CE. And both of them talk about these Gnostics that they've heard of and they don't like. Put shortly, what they don't like about these Gnostics is that they teach that the creator of the world is not God. The creator of the world is somebody else and he's not good, he's bad. And this explains why we see so many problems in the world today. If you look around, you see a lot of chaos. You see terrible things happening. It's hard to explain this stuff. Philosophers had a hard time doing it. And some individuals then said, well, perhaps things are so messed up down here because the person who made this world is messed up too. There's another, if the word God means anything, it doesn't refer to somebody that would make this, right? So that's the basic idea. But there's a second component, I think that you see also uh, discussed by Irenaeus and Porphyry, but not always as explicitly, where these Gnostics seem to claim some kind of kinship with the world beyond this world, a, a heavenly world from which our souls come. In other words, this means that human beings on some level, or at least chosen human beings, the Gnostic human beings, are superior to this present world as well as to the creator who made it. Now, those who criticize and want to bring the term Gnosticism into disuse would say, these critics use the term Gnosticoi to denote people that they wanted to push away. We don't have any sources written by these Gnostics that describe themselves this way. And I think this is what that argument is really all about. We do have these documents discovered in Egypt, including the Nath Mahdi texts, which I 
mentioned earlier, discovered in 1945, as well as some other Coptic codices. So, for example, the so-called Berlin Gnostic Codex, as well as the Bruce and the Askew and the Chakos Codices. Chakos is famous because it has the Gospel of Judas in it. We have these other codices that altogether contain works that seem to strongly resemble the kind of thinking that Irenaeus and Porphyry were talking about. And in this literature, and there's a lot of it, we're talking about dozens of texts, and they are rich, and they are fascinating. The people who wrote these texts, they don't call themselves Gnostic. They have other names for themselves. And so there's a question then of, well, why the term Gnostic? Do we call these individuals Gnostics because their opponents call them Gnostics? Did they call themselves Gnostics at all? It's very difficult to establish this one way or another. And I'm agnostic on that question, actually. What I do know, though, is that people have been using the term Gnosticism to talk about this phenomenon, this interesting phenomenon of people differentiating the creator from God and identifying themselves with God instead for over 400 years. People have been calling that Gnosticism. And I think uh, that's worth doing today. If we toss out the term Gnosticism and stop using it altogether, say, well, this is all just early Christian material, it's evidence of diversity. Well, sure, it is evidence of diversity in early Christianity. But then we also kind of erase the, the very real differences that this diversity is predicated upon. It's not a small thing to say that the creator God of the Old Testament is not a real God. That's a big deal, and we need some name for that. It needs to be one that is easy to recognize, and I think it's easier to use one that we've been using for a while already. Could you briefly introduce how you understand the group of these texts defined as Gnostics and as Gnostic texts? And do you even think that the terms that we coin as Gnostic, the, the texts that we coin as Gnostic, were really one uh, made by, by one group, or is this is this term somehow artificial? Sure, the term is absolutely artificial. Gnosticism, like I said, is not an ancient word; it's a modern term coined by a modern modern English speaker uh, 400 years ago that we use to talk about material that was written and uh, circulating and then was buried over 1500 years ago, right? I think it's useful to use as what we call in the scientific community a, a second order term. That is a term that we invent to designate phenomenon phenomena that we see. And that's okay. We use all kinds of such terms. Um, Christianity is such a term. You don't find a, a notion of Christianity as an abstract thing in the first or the second century. You get people who start talking about Christians and Jesus. But nonetheless, we still need on some level to talk about Christianity in this period in order to communicate effectively <laughs> mm -hmm. about what it, where it is we're trying to talk about. Another good example is religion. Our 
modern notions of religion as bound up with especially faith and declarations of faith. These are very, uh, these, these are deeply indebted to Protestant discourse. You don't have anything like it in the ancient world. And nonetheless, it's still useful for us to talk about something like religion in the ancient Mediterranean world, Egyptian religion, Greek religion, because we need some way to talk about ritual life and people's beliefs about superhuman beings. And these are also bound up with our ideas about religion today. So Gnosticism is a word that we make up and use to talk about the same phenomenon. And we have a right to do that. It's okay that we made up this word. This is part of what scientists are supposed to do. Of course, a diversity of groups seem to have produced this literature. So a, a classic way that scholars break it down is to talk about schools, or I prefer literary traditions of Gnosticism. Perhaps the most well-known of these literary traditions is one called Valentinianism, because you can relate the, the body of surviving Valentinian literature to a school, an actual movement of people uh, that we can identify with names and places. In other words, a social group that traced its authority back to the second century teacher, Valentinus, who was a Christian Platonist from Alexandria who then taught in Rome, supposedly almost became Pope, but failed. And many of his students became very respected teachers and theologians in the early churches and were important rivals for the first Christian theologians. A lot of early Christian theology trying to counter the ideas of Valentinus and his students. And their reports of Valentinian communities and churches being persecuted as late as the fifth century. So they were around for a long time. Another group is the so-called classic Gnostic or Sethian group. And here we have no evidence for individuals or people or social movement. Instead, all we have are texts that share a particular body of literary features and mythology. They talk about the same kinds of beings. They use the same vocabulary for identifying God, whom they call the great and invisible spirit. There's a lot of interest in baptism and baptismal language. And so for a long time, scholars thought, okay, there must be some kind of particular social movement, a kind of early Christian cult that produced this literature and baptism was their central ritual. And ah, I almost forgot why we call them the Sethians. The most widely shared characteristic in this body of literature is that they identify Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, as revealer or savior. They love to talk about Seth. And when they talk about Jesus, they identify him as Seth. It's the second coming of Seth, actually. Seth is the good guy. Why would they be interested in Seth? Because he, unlike Cain and Abel, was the perfect image of Adam. And Adam is, of course, the perfect image of God prior to his fall. So if you have an exemplar for human divinity in the book of Genesis, it's definitely Seth. He never does anything wrong. So 
we have these texts that talk about uh, uh, mythology and theology in this very particular way, but we can't trace them to any particular individual. This is a big difference with the Valentinian literature, where the ancient theologians say, yeah, we, we heard about this guy, Theodotus, and he lives over here, and he has a group. Or St. Ambrose, who says, well, there was a burning of a Valentinian church last week, and I'm, I'm really not happy about that. We don't hear anything about the, the, the Sethian group or church associated with this particular literature, uh, all of which we've discovered as part of these uh, the discoveries of Coptic, of Coptic texts that I mentioned earlier. So I prefer to talk about a Sethian literary tradition. We have these texts, and they seem to share some kind of literary tradition, but we don't know who produced them. And this would be the so-called Sethian, or some scholars call it classic Gnostic literature. Why classic? Because it, a lot of this literature sums up everything that we want to use the word Gnosticism to describe. They talk a lot about the creator god or demiurge in very vivid ways. They talk a lot about the human being as divine. And they're pretty good reads. They're, they're fun to read. So they really stick out. The Valentinian literature can be very, uh, it can be very technical at times, and sometimes it can be very ecclesiastical. There's a lot of, there are also pastoral Valentinian texts. Sethian or classic Gnostic texts are mythological. They're all written with the genre of apocalypse, revelatory literature. They're mostly pseudepigraphic, which means that their author is pretending to be somebody they're not somebody who lived thousands of years ago and possesses ancient wisdom that is now being handed over to you. It's gripping stuff. Um, you actually organically answered to the two questions I was about to ask you, which is the social context and uh, why it was rejected by the Orthodox Church. So as you said, it's, the social context is only partially reconstructable? That's right. The social context is only partially reconstructable for several reasons. The primary sources we have where the Gnostics would speak for themselves, these, these Coptic Gnostic texts that have been discovered over the last few hundred years, they talk some about social contexts, but they're not speaking to historians trying to fill in gaps. They have their own internal language for it. So there's a, for example, a group of very interesting texts, uh, Nag Hammadi Codex 7, which uh, do not seem to, to, to belong to either the Valentinian or Sethic or Classic tradition. Um, it's been argued that they perhaps belong to the school of uh, Basilides, an, an early second century Christian teacher, arguably the first Christian philosopher, actually very, very early. He was running at the beginning of the second century, which for the history of Christianity is very old, perhaps older than some of the Gospels. So these texts are called the Second Treatise of the Great Seth and the Apocalypse of Peter. And they both polemicize against other Christians in very aggressive ways. And the Second Treatise of the Great Seth has some very transgressive passages and, and language where there's a full-on denunciation of all of the patriarchs 
in the Old Testament. Adam was a joke. Abraham was a joke. David was a joke. And the Creator himself was a joke, declaring that you shall have no other gods before him. Why would he do that? It's, it's very dismissive of the theology of its competitors. So we can see that some people were writing not just uh, philosophical speculations about good and evil, and where human beings fit in with all of that, but saying, those other people are wrong. <laughs> Don't listen to them. The Apocalypse of Peter has uh, some similar declarations, but it's, it's very famous for a scene that some people call the laughing Jesus. And the, the, one of the theologies of the text is that the idea of Jesus being crucified in the flesh cannot be right. How would God let himself be crucified as a body and suffer with a body? Rather, and this is a, uh, this is a question that was debated also by so-called proto-Orthodox or pre-Orthodox thinkers. So this text takes a position that was debated by everybody, right? But rejected by the Orthodox Church Rather, it argues that Jesus exchanged forms in a kind of funny way with somebody who was accompanying him to the cross. And it's not him that got put up there. He sort of put an illusion or hologram on somebody else and they crucified the wrong guy. While Jesus himself was standing next to the cross, laughing and smiling. This is what's called the laughing Jesus. And this is a, a motif uh, which was also noted and condemned by some of the church fathers and is related to this character of Basilides. So these polemical, uh, there, there are polemical aspects to some Gnostic literature that tell us, okay, the people who were writing this stuff, they're clearly arguing with some of their contemporaries and they believed it strongly enough to produce these kinds of texts that espouse these, what we today consider to be very transgressive views and were clearly transgressive in their own time because they were suppressed. But it's difficult to say much more about their social context beyond that because these authors don't tell us their names and they don't tell us where they are. All we know is that these texts were eventually transmitted in Coptic and copied and then buried in the, probably in the fourth to sixth century CE. The Valentinian literature, like I said, is a little bit different because there we can relate some of the teachings and the Valentinian texts that we've discovered. We also have Coptic Valentinian texts among, chiefly among the Nagamadi literature, perhaps exclusively among the Nagamadi literature. It's hard to say the other codices have featured Valentinianism or not. But we can relate this to the teachings of identifiable people. Some scholars have said, oh, well, this particular text must be written by Valentine as a student of Heraclion, or we see a little bit of Theodotus here, and so forth. So this is one of the, the challenges, but also one of the interesting things about the phenomenon of Gnosticism. We just have these books, and they tell us this stuff. 
And then we have reports about people who were teaching things like we have in these books. But these books are not written by people who want to tell us who they were in their everyday lives. Rather, it's a kind of subcultural or esoteric literature that uses a lot of insider language, expects you to be part of the group, right? And which I think probably coexisted alongside Christianity and what we call paganism or, or Greek and Roman and Egyptian cults much in the same way that people today form their little subcultures and groups based upon their interests or beliefs and then coexist with the rest of the culture, right? Let's say you're into Harry Potter fan fiction. I, someone, someone I'm close to knows a lot about Harry Potter fan fiction. If they ever listen to this podcast, they'll, they'll know who they are. <laughs> You want to write stories about Harry Potter all day. It's really important to you. Uh, Harry Potter has uh, had a big impact on your life. You think a lot about Harry and Hermione and all of that. So you get together with other people who share this group. You go to little conventions. You read your stories aloud to one another. Sometimes you might even meet somebody and marry somebody from one of these groups because you have a shared interest. You met each other over the internet. This is how you, you first went to a message board and uh, you exchanged uh, some, some of your fiction. You thought, oh, let's all get together and talk about Harry Potter fan fiction. I mean, a lot of people do this sort of thing. It's a big part of their lives, but then they also go to work. They also go to church or the synagogue or the mosque, whatever they, they belong to. They have children who go to school just like everybody else. And I think the Gnostics were something like this they were a subcultural group who were kind of doing their own thing alongside everyone else of course they went to school too of course they had jobs if they were producing a lot of this literature which is difficult and technical they probably had some money maybe they were trained as lawyers that's what most educated people did back then you could train as a lawyer and go into politics and then you would get together with your friends and read about the bad creator on the side. This is easy for me to imagine. Um, let's dive into the relationship of magical texts and Gnosticism. So what you describe now could also perhaps go for the magicians, that they also could have their own jobs and their own lives and create the magical texts, we don't know. Uh, you wrote an important article on the topic uh, magical Coptic Christian, the, the great angel Eleleth, and the four luminaries in the Egyptian <coughs> literature of the first millennium CE, in which you study the names of the four luminaries, which appear both in the Gnostic uh, texts and magical texts. Um, however, they seem to be understood differently in, in both. Can you explain this relationship a little bit on, on this example? Sure. So, as I discussed earlier, the Sethian or classic Gnostic literary tradition is defined not by a social group that we found or people with names we don't we don't have that it's defined by a set of commonalities between different texts which all seem to talk about the same kinds of mythological figures and themes right and one of the most important of these themes is a group of four angels who these texts call the four lights 
for the four luminaries. The Greek word uh, is a Greek word that is invoked in the Coptic, and, it's, and it is poster, it's light or lamp, four lamps. And the names of these luminaries is, is stable throughout these texts, these four angels, and they're important. It so happens to be that these names also pop up in magical texts. So Coptic and magical papyri like to talk about these four luminaries, but they call them angels instead, and they're invoked alongside a lot of other angels. So this brings us to an interesting question that I, I would say is actually a chicken or egg question. What comes first? Are the magical texts, which use the names of the four luminaries, Gnostic magical texts written by Gnostics, showing us that Gnostics were also doing magic? Because, well, we associate these four names with the Gnostics, so this shows us when we have a text that also uses these four names, a Gnostic wrote it. Or does it show us that the Gnostic literature we possess was influenced by earlier magical literature, and therefore Gnosticism is an outgrowth of magical or sub-religious discourse in late antiquity? And it's impossible to say which comes first. If you trace the manuscripts in which these names appear, and the literary traditions in which these names appear, back, you, you go back to roughly the second century. Dating um, manuscripts based off of handwriting and um, the, some signs that may appear in the manuscripts alone, that's a, that's a daring enterprise. It's, it's not an exact science. But these names appear in strictly magical, without Gnostic contexts as early as the second or even middle of the third century. But we have reports at the same time from Christian theologians who know these names and associate them with the Gnostics, namely Irenaeus, among others, who we think were writing already in the second century, and certainly in the third century. In other words, the names appear in both Gnostic and magical contexts at the same time. Ugh. So they're just part of what we might call a common Mediterranean language for talking about superhuman beings, angels or luminaries, whatever. These names become important. I do think that they probably are related to the Egyptian context in some way. So much of our evidence goes back to Egypt, and this may tell us something about the location of this particular set of names. But Egypt, on the other hand, is a, a bit of, can be misleading. You know, we have so much evidence from Egypt because Egypt is dry. So many manuscripts survive there because of the climate. Stuff that could not survive elsewhere does survive in Egypt. This is part of why Egyptology is so important, right? The climate of Egypt preserves the past for us. So if these names had appeared in other manuscripts and traditions circulating, say, in Syria or in Italy or in Asia Minor, then 
we would not expect to find manuscripts from antiquity using them in these places because these manuscripts could not survive in a cave for 2,000 years, except under very strange circumstances, like Heraclitian or something. So, the, we have a chicken or egg problem with Gnosticism versus magic. What do we do with that? It's useful for us still, I think, to compare magical and Gnostic texts, to read them alongside one another, and to see which particular names and traditions get transmitted and in what ways. So the names of the four luminaries, for example, they go back to roughly the same point. We can't say which group Gnostics or magicians use them first, but we can say where they do go. They are used consistently in magical literature all the way up through the end of the first millennium in Coptic. But they also show up in some Coptic angelological literature, that is, texts which talk about angels, which are not Gnostic at all. In other words, they have a, a long reception history even after people stop producing Gnostic literature. They kind of take on a life of their own. And the, the argument of this article is this may help us understand one of the Nag Hammadi texts where only one of these luminaries is mentioned by name, Elilet. And he doesn't act like the luminaries do in other Gnostic texts. He acts kind of different. And this makes me wonder if this isn't the Gnostic Elilet of the four luminaries at all. Rather, this is just the angel Elilet that we find in magical literature. Why wouldn't we have uh, such a figure also appearing in the Nag Hammadi texts? He acts like the magical Elilet, talks like the magical Elilet, looks like the magical Elilet, so it's probably the magical Elilet. And for this particular text, which otherwise has no Sethian features, then we would not want to use the appearance of this particular angel to indicate this Sethian provenance. That's, the, that's what we get out of such an analysis, or one of the things that we get, as it were. There are many places that following these names will lead you to. Um, so another great example is a name which shows up in a, a number of Gnostic texts, Sisenzen, Sisengen Barharantis. Oh my goodness. This is a name that students of Jewish magic know because it appears on some of the Aramaic incantation bowls. And I believe it may come up in some of the Hecalope literature. This is a body of early medieval uh, literature named for the palaces or the, the, the Hecalope through which a mystical seer may travel making a heavenly ascent. In a celebrated analysis that is now decades old, the real doyen of the study of Jewish mysticism, Gershom Sholem, demonstrated that this name, Sisengen Bar Karanjis, is not simply a nonsense name, but it's Aramaic, Sisengen, person, Bar, son of Karanjis. That's what it means. So we also have this name in some Coptic texts, and this shows us 
that this this common language of invocation of these heavenly beings shared between Gnostic writers and people transmitting magical spells extended beyond Egypt into places like Syria and Palestine. And even, and also beyond Greek and Coptic, it goes into Aramaic. So there are lots of possibilities for tracing the world of Coptic magic outside of both the world of magic and the world of Coptic. Besides the names of the angels and luminaries, what other features do magical agnostics texts share? Well, the point of using these names in the first place is to make these invocations, right? If you know the name, you can get the angel to do what you want. This does not seem to be so important in the Gnostic texts where these names appear. Rather, these names appear in the context that we would call doxological, from Greek doxos, which means glory, also honor. So it's for something to be doxological, that means it is concerned with glorification. A hymn is doxological. And these Gnostic texts are full of hymns. There are many scenes where a seer an individual is raptured into heaven and they begin to glorify the deity and also the angels around the deity and through participating in this act of glorification they themselves receive glory and become glorified and become more divine and then they ascend further to a higher level of divinity and repeat until they get to god himself this pattern is very important for Jewish mystical literature. And here we have a, a, a very close parallel between visions and uh, Jewish mystical texts and visions and Gnostic texts. And also the use of these names in making this ascent and participating in this kind of glorification. So that's, that's important. Um, the, the Jewish parallels, they're old. They go back to uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually. You find this sort of thing in one of the Dead Sea texts called the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice. But it becomes very pronounced in the Hecalo literature I mentioned earlier, which is a, a good deal later. That material at the earliest goes back to the 7th or 8th century after Christ. And the Gnostic literature we have from the 4th to 6th centuries that might give us a window into how these kinds of Jewish mystical practices were received and developed amongst Christians in a period where we know very little about the development of these practices, practices what happened to them. If you read histories of Jewish mysticism, they'll tell you something about the Bible, they'll tell you something about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then they say, and we know nothing until we get to the Hecalot literature, which is 500-year gap. But the Nagamani texts give us a window into that black box. What does that have to do with magic? A lot of Hecalot literature, this early uh, medieval Jewish mystical literature, is also magical. They are full 
of divine names and use of nonsense words or what we would call nomina barbara, fake barbarian speech, used not just in the doxologies, the glorification of the deity, but also in spells to help you get what you want. The most common of these is called the Sar Torah literature. This is fun. It's where you, you use the, the names to summon the angel of the Torah, who will then give you all the knowledge of the Torah. You'll memorize the Bible all at once in the original. <laughs> so lots of knowledge of a good book from an angel. This is one of the things you can do with the, the right names. So it's interesting. In the study of Jewish mystical literature, you have these debates there too about, well, is it magical or is it mystical? And why do we see the, the same texts go back and forth between mysticism and magic? You have this dynamic in the Gnostic literature as well. And this to me also speaks not just for a continuity in how we pose our problems and create our categories, but also a continuity in the ancient sources themselves. Um, were there shared features in the Coptic magical ritual and in any um, rituals described in the Gnostic texts? Do you, do you see any common commonality? What are the rituals described in Gnostic texts? In Valentinian literature, you have some discussions of, of liturgy. There's a ritual called the bridal chamber, about which we know very little, and I won't speculate here about that. Um, people debate this, <laughs> and I will not enter that debate today. There are also descriptions of baptism and anointment. In other words, rituals that other Christians were doing, normal Christian rituals. In the Sethian text, you have a lot of stuff about baptism. So I think there's not much continuity between the descriptions of ritual practices in Gnostic texts and what we find in magical literature, beyond perhaps an emphasis on purity and ritual washing. But that is so common as to be not very interesting, in my opinion. What about anointing? Yeah, anointing too, but that's also common. Mm -hmm. All Christians were involved in anointing. However, you do have a couple of texts transmitted in the same manuscripts as the Coptic Gnostic corpus. That is to say, texts that are not really about Gnosticism, but are related to Gnosticism and found in the same manuscripts where we find Gnostic texts that do talk about ritual in some ways that overlap with Gnostic literature. Uh, one of these are the so-called books of Yehu, which are in the Bruce Codex, which is not really a codex, it's several codices that were uh, put together and bound as a single book at the Bodleian Library after their arrival in England in the 18th century. But these books of Yehu, as they are called, they describe uh, rituals for the ascent of the soul, and they even have drawings, which look sort of like sigils, as it were, sigils, as it were. 
as well as lists of ingredients to use in rituals. Some other parts of the books of Yehu include a kind of revelation dialogue. Jesus is with the disciples, and he describes rituals with lists of ingredients, as well as different, different kinds of baptism that can be used. And not just a water baptism, but also a baptism by fire. There has been some investigation of the relationship of the books of Yehu with magical literature, but this is relatively understudied. And a good place to start would be to look at the kinds of lists of ingredients you have in both sets of texts and see what you find. Another text is a work called Marsanes that's found in Nagamani Codex 10. Marsanes is a work that's related to later Neoplatonism. It seems to derive some of its theoretical perspective from a philosopher we can identify named Theodore of Asine, who was writing in the early fourth century, which means that Marsanes was composed and then translated into Coptic in the early fourth or mid fourth century. Many of these texts we think were uh, translated, were written in the second or third century and then translated uh, only a little bit afterwards. So this puts Marsanes on the late side of the spectrum. But Marsanes doesn't only talk about Neoplatonic theory and theology, it also talks about the soul and then the relationship of the soul to the stars and to the zodiac. And it goes on to discuss how ritual objects work and why certain ritual objects work in the way that they do. And then uh, in a passage which is uh, well-preserved, fortunately, it describes the different kinds of syllables, combinations of consonants and vocal and um, vowels, and how they might be used together to uh, bind angels, name angels, and then to bind them. Marsanis is one of the most fragmentary of the Nagamadi texts. It is it was not well preserved at all. And so there's not a lot we can do with it besides identify what the consonants are. But what's important about it is that it shows that there is a ritual manual written by somebody with philosophical training, or at least learned in philosophy, that has been translated into Coptic. It's kind of an occult treatise which has been translated into Coptic, uh, resembling something like the work on the mysteries of Egypt by Neamphitus, or some of the Hermetic texts, which also talk about ritual practice. There's nothing else like that in Coptic, and so it's a very interesting work. The interests of Gnostic literature are usually very otherworldly. We have some texts that, like I said earlier, are polemical and attack other Christians and competing Christian groups. And then we have some texts that are pastoral. A church father named Epiphanius preserves a letter by the Valentinian teacher Ptolemy to his student Flora, where he's really concerned with explaining Valentinian theology in a, 
in, in an ecclesiastical environment. Torah, my student, you don't understand what's going on with these particular problems. Let me explain them to you. It's, this is how it affects your community. And there's another text that speaks particularly to, to problems of authority in a Valentinian community in the Ankhamadi Codex 11. Unfortunately, it's very fragmentary. It's difficult to tell what's going on. It's a pity because it's a very rich, obviously a very rich text. Create lots of knowledge there. But most of this literature, especially the Sethian or classic Gnostic stuff, is talking about mythology. Where does the world come from? Where is it all going? What's the big scheme of history? Here's a list of names of different parts of the heavenly world. Here's a list of names of angels and so forth. Very uncosmic, very unimmediate things. It's pretty far away from worrying about healing your eyes or getting away from a demon that will give you a fever. And, of course, getting somebody to fall in love with you. Yeah, so you would assume that both texts are targeted towards a different audience or towards a completely different need or have a different purpose. I think a different need could absolutely be the same audience. Like I said earlier, the Gnostics, they went to school and walked around in society like everybody else, right? We, I mean... It's been hypothesized that they were monks or they withdrew from society. I don't know. I, I imagine they probably were participating in Roman society like other Christians were. But this particular literature was, was about this particular interest of theirs in this very otherworldly stuff. And also playing down the importance of the worldly societal stuff around them. You know, much as uh, some people today belong to subcultures that rejects at least the, the importance of contemporary government or contemporary uh, political and economic discourse. They, they're interested in other stuff. They go to concerts instead, or they, they hang out in squats. This doesn't mean that they're not human beings that have to go to the doctor sometime. And uh, back then, part of going to the doctor was sometimes getting a spell for your blindness or for some other disease that was bothering you. So I imagine the ancient Gnostics were doing magic in the same way everybody else was. And they, as long as they were still in these bodies, they had to deal with bodily problems. They just didn't write about that in their Gnostic literature because the Gnostic literature is about something else. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the tree of life in the Gnostic text? The story of the Garden of Eden is told in different ways, in different Gnostic texts. But it's always interesting because it's so different. And you know, this is one of these stories we learn as soon as we're taught anything. I mean, after, after we learn to, to speak and to walk, you know, learned that there's a moon in the sky along with the sun, the difference between night and day, at least in the West, we run into the story of the Garden of Eden pretty quickly, right? Hard to remember a time when you didn't know. And these texts tell the story differently. And there's a, a, a subset of classic or 
Sethian Gnostic literature that some scholars call Ophite because of the word Ophis, which is Greek for snake. And this particular set of texts talks about the snake in a way which is very different. The snake isn't always the good guy, although it sometimes is in this literature, which is itself interesting and different. But the advice of the snake is always good. So when the snake says, you were forbidden to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but actually you should go eat of it. Because knowledge or gnosis, that is the way forward. This advice is, of course, what gets Adam and Eve in such big trouble in the Bible. And all of these Ophite texts say, no, no, no. It was the right thing for them to go and eat of it. And the God who punished them for eating of it is a bad guy because what's bad about knowledge, right? I mean, what kind of God would punish people for wanting to know things? That can't be right, can it? That's more or less the, the upshot of uh, this aspect of the Ophite literature. So in these texts, eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, is always a good thing. I think also here we have a, a powerful argument for focusing on the language of Gnosis and Gnosticism when we want to talk about this literature, because the tree story is so important and these texts talk about it in such a distinctive way that is so different than what became Orthodox Christian teaching and what we learn in Sunday school, certainly from what what I learned in Sunday school. The tree of life doesn't turn up so much in these texts, but where it does, it's really interesting. There's a scene in uh, a text called the Apocryphon of John, Apocryphon means secret book. So translated, that means the secret book of John. And the Apocryphon of John was probably, almost certainly the most popular of ancient Gnostic texts. We have five pieces of evidence for it, which is much more than uh, we have for most other Gnostic literature. Um, there are four manuscripts, which reflect three different translations of the work that we can break down into two recensions, a long recension or version, a short recension or version. And then we have one summary of the, the work written by the church father Irenaeus, which is uh, repeated in many other contexts. So you can always remember it, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, this way. Five witnesses, that's a lot for an ancient Gnostic text. And the Apocryphon of John talks about the tree of life in this way. It's not the tree of life, it's the tree of death. There's a long, amazing, uh, a quite, quite poetic description of how the different parts of the tree are not good, they're bad. The, it talks about the leaves as poison and the branches represent desire. It only brings bad things to you. And so it identifies life, and it uses very corporeal language to do this, like uh, uh, your question, as, as your question introduced. So there's a, there's a very close connection between identifying the idea of the tree of life, but between the tree of life and the body, and the body understood as the seat of desire. The mind, and to a lesser extent the soul, may overcome these desires. 
And what this implies is a message about the true self. What does it mean to be human? Namely, you are not your body. And here I'm rapping on the table right now with my hand. You know, my hand is not my body and my and me hitting the table. That's also not me. It's what I'm thinking. It's the words that I'm saying. It's my talking to you right here, right now. I don't need a body to do that. I could do this just with my mind. One might say instead, actually, what you're using is a body and a throat and all of that. But this text, it doesn't identify you with all of that. You know, the, the, the body is what leads you into trouble uh, through its desires and through its impulses and through its uh, also through uh, its mortality. You know, it's going to die, it's going to fall apart, but soul that is eternal. So the tree of life is not identified with eternal life in the Apocryphon or secret book of John at all. Rather, it's, it's identified with a body that will eventually die and all of the bad things that come along with being in a body. Um, so what does it mean to be an academic today, according to you? Um, how do you perceive the social status of the job? And what do people say when, when, when you're at a party and they ask you what you do for, for a living and you say that uh, you work on Gnosticism? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll take the last question first. <laughs> okay. uh, usually people say, what is Gnosticism? But, uh, and I tell them, but, and my, my advice for any scholar today is learn to explain it in 60 seconds or less. In, in layman's terms, that's important. So if I'm asked at a party, what do I do? I, I'm a specialist for the study of ancient Gnosticism. What's that? These are, this is ancient heretical literature preserved in Egyptian texts. So I had to learn all these ancient languages and learn about manuscripts and ancient philosophy to try to interpret this stuff. And it's really interesting material. So everybody should know about it. Okay. And that's enough, you know, you can, you can leave it there. Um, and then the follow-up question I, I very often get is, you can get paid to do that? And my answer is, yes. Yes, you can. You have to have a lot of discipline. You have to work very hard. You have to make sacrifices. And you have to be lucky. Um, and I, I suppose this is, a, this, this, this is a good opportunity to emphasize something that I think that has become really important and that's not talked about enough, um, especially among younger scholars, about what it means to, to be an academic today. You got to be lucky. Luck plays a big element in this. Increasingly, it's always, it's always been the case that you have to write applications to get into a program or to get funding for something. That's more the case than ever. And sometimes it's the case that really good scholars simply do not get the break that they wanted or needed at the right time. And that can derail or even end a career. And that's not anybody's fault. It's, it's just bad luck. And you know, we see that the, a, a career is not going the way that we thought it would. Um, we, we should always keep that in mind. How to the extent to which factors over which we have no control um, are actually very important in determining what happens to us. I know this from the beginning of my own career. I was supposed to do Japanese. 
and instead I got landed in something else. That's because of a secretary or a professor wanted to change a course time or to change my life in a positive way. I'm glad I do this, but there are, there are things over which we have no control. In the meantime, you have discipline and you do your best. Um, what does it mean to be a scholar today? What does scholarly work look like? It can go in a number of different directions. Um, I think there are three, three, three kinds of, of career paths. One is uh, careers that are very focused on teaching, especially in the United States, in the humanities. Um, this is what it means to, to be a scholar. You know, I'm from the U.S. and I, I did my bachelor's and, and my Ph.D. there, so I'm very familiar with this environment. And I see m more than when I was beginning, with, than when I was starting out, American humanities is about teaching. It's about teaching experience. It's about um, engaging students. It's about being entertaining, doing good outreach, being charismatic. Research is still important at some institutions, but there are many universities where actually it doesn't really matter. They want you to be able to teach a lot of courses to uh, uh, to very large rooms, you know, 70, 80 students at a time, big lecture courses. In order to do that four days a week, you need to be a good extempore speaker, good impromptu lecturer. You need to be able to perform. These are very different than the kind, this is, that's a different set of skills than what you find uh, uh, at some of the research universities in the US, of which we have very few left. <laughs> and then especially in Europe, where I think the, the academic life is much more about research and uh, reading and writing and changing, changing what it is that we teach. That's the point of research, right? If somebody is teaching from textbooks all day, these textbooks are based upon articles and books written by or specialists. And, and the textbook sums up this knowledge in a way that communicates it more effectively to people who are not specialists. That's what a teaching book or a textbook is for. So scholarship in Europe and then at what are ones, these are first-class research universities in the U.S. It's uh, more oriented around writing the sort of literature that textbooks are based upon. And this is a second kind of career. I began my studies at a place where teaching was really intensive, and I thought I was just become, going to become a teacher myself. I saw myself, in if I was going to become a professor, I thought I would be reading good books with smart young people every week. And that just sounded great to me. But it turned out uh, I was good at research. I like to think I'm also good at teaching and presenting. I enjoy it. But I was definitely good at research early on. And so I qualified for a lot of research jobs. And also I wanted to uh, move to, to Europe for several reasons. I wanted to go abroad. And, and more of the jobs here are research-based, so this put me on a research track. And I don't regret that. I've, I've enjoyed it. But it's a different life than being a teacher at a liberal arts college in the U.S.
What's the third track? I think this is where a lot of people go in mid to late career, and that's administration. Many professors become administrators and spend a significant amount of their time as administrators. Uh, that's also what it means to be a scholar, to help run the university, to develop the curriculum for everybody. I'm young, so relatively young, I suppose. So I have less experience with administration. But I know from seeing my colleagues and from working with older colleagues that actually that's also a big part of it. And people who stay in this game their whole lives, this consumes a lot of the second half of their careers, becoming administrators, running things. Now that, especially in Europe, funding is increasingly based off of running projects, more people are doing administration at younger ages, running these projects. And this is where I have experience with administration myself. I'm, a big part of my job is running the Greek loanwords project in Berlin. And this means doing paperwork, keeping everything going, and so forth. I don't think it's very different than running a department in some ways. What was the reality the, the teachers kind of conveyed to you and what is the reality that is now? So here's an anecdote. When I began my PhD in 2005, the head of the department sat down all of the incoming doctoral students and said, because you're at Yale, you are going to get a job when you're done. We have 100% placement. We're going to get you tenure track by the end of your fifth year. Even if you have not completed your dissertation, although we want you to complete your dissertation, you can get a job with only a dissertation chapter. That was 2005. After 2008, that was not true anymore. The so much money disappeared from endowments for universities in the US and I think also in Europe from uh, government funds for universities. So much money disappeared for work in the humanities through the financial crisis. Um, I mean, the, the, the effect of that has, has been staggering. And, and I'm old enough to have watched it happen and, and seen the, the before and after. So when I was finishing my PhD after 2008, we had great doctoral stu students who we couldn't place even though they were from Yale University. And they had far better CVs at the end of their PhDs than some of their own teachers who were now professors had. And this is a, a phenomenon that I think a lot of younger scholars who finished their PhDs after 2008 are familiar with. The mountain we have to climb is not the same mountain as that climbed by people before, period. It's just not comparable. There's so much more competition for so many fewer jobs. And uh, that's, that's very tough. And you can uh, really isolate uh, the year that changed. 2008 was the year that changed, period. If you just look at the numbers of jobs posted in religious studies, and if you look beyond the study of religion to English departments, German departments, philosophy departments, same thing, same thing, the, the drop and tenure track jobs that are available, permanent positions that are available is, is 
that's uh, catastrophic. It's not a matter of double digits, it's, it's, it's a matter of 50% or more. And there's never been a recovery. So that's one big change. But like I said, I mean, this, this has happened to everybody, you know, outside of the university, 2008 was the changing point for most of our economies worldwide, right? Um, so in this way, I think the, the way that's, in this way, I think the, the, the change and what it means to be an academic, at least economically speaking, um, is consistent with what's happening in our societies in general, that there are fewer jobs available, which are stable or secure. There are actually still lots of positions available that are short term. So many of us are working on one or two year or three year contracts. Very few of us landed anything like a permanent position anymore. And this is also true, not just in the university. This is true for everything. Um, look at uh, the phenomenon of, of taxis versus Uber, for example. Um, look at positions in non-governmental organizations. You, you, can, you can go on. Temporary contracts have become the new normal in, in our societies. And this is a, a big, this is a big change for, for academics, especially when we relate to our older colleagues, many of whom landed more or less permanent positions without so much trouble. I think that's, that's a big change. A third thing is what we're doing right now, which is digitalization and the arrival of social media. When I began as a scholar, there, we didn't have blog, the word blog didn't exist. <laughs> and there was nothing that we needed the word for. Um, when I began my bachelor's study, I don't think there was such a thing as a PDF, you know? Um, now we do everything over PDF and ebooks and library. In, in Scandinavia, they, they're not calling them libraries anymore. They're calling them learning centers or information centers because they don't want to buy books, hard copy books. They, they're buying files. I mean, so digitalization and information technology is revolutionizing everything that we do. And um, we could, I think, do a two-hour podcast just about that, obviously. And this, this, this makes it easier to spread knowledge in many wonderful ways. If you like books, hard copy books, like I do, <laughs> and you, you kind of regret that you have to read everything on a PDF now, that's kind of sad. Well, I'm not so crazy about that. It changed uh, in a related, on a related point, it changed publishing completely, right? Because it used to be that you would have to my first article, I had to type out on a computer, print out, and then mail three copies of that printout to an office where the editor of the journal was working, at the university where the editor of the journal was working. And then that person would mail three copies, those three copies to three different referees by snail mail, you know? I mean, now we do all of this digitally and the ability to publish 
the results of that, let's say the article gets through and they want to put it out. Back then, I don't even know if that journal had a, a website with a digital version. They, they distributed printed copies of, of these, uh, of, of the printed copies of bound copies of this journal all over the place. They still do that to some extent. I was walking by the theology faculty the day before yesterday, and I saw a copy of this journal uh, through the window from outside. So, okay, they still print something. But most of its traffic is, I think, digital now. So why do we need the press, in this case, Johns Hopkins University Press, to do all of the binding when actually all the work is being done by the scholars who have nothing to do with the physical production of the physical book. If it's all digital, then the scholars can just publish it on their own without any intervention from the press whatsoever. This is, of course, the thinking behind the open access movements, right? That's also a big change. You didn't have any of that when I was starting out. And the, the questions of how academic publishing works and who benefits from the system that we currently have and how should scholars position themselves to, on the one hand, be able to produce as much quality knowledge for the planet as they possibly can, uh, while on the other hand, not being exploited by both the universities and by publishers. This is all still big open questions that didn't exist 15 years ago. And um, last question, if you were to look into the future, what, are your, what would your prediction be, I guess, towards digitalization and money coming from the projects, I suppose? Um, and what would your advice be uh, for students in our field? So with regards to the trends that we've been discussing, destabilization, temporary contracts, digitalization mm -hmm. of everything, my, my sense for everything related to the 21st century is that it's just going to be faster, faster, more and more. Mm -hmm. So I would say more of the same and prepare yourself for that. What would my advice to students be? Keep abreast of the technology that is available and, and use it. I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. Okay. Outreach through social media is, is a huge thing. And I think it's really effective. I think it's going to become even more the case. More general advice, I would say, that applies to this career at any place or time is, first of all, most importantly, do it if you love it. You do it for yourself because you love it. That's You don't do this to get famous or to make money. You do it because you love to do this research and to read these books and to teach and to talk about these ideas. You know. If this makes you really happy, your your the rest of the stuff will not bother you so much because it's a real privilege to do something that you like every day. And the second thing I would say is languages, languages, languages. You gotta read all this stuff in the original. And that also goes for the modern languages, secondary literature. Um I've benefited from the adoption of English as the international language, the, the lingua franca of our day, because, because I'm a native speaker of it. But 
if you do everything in English and get used to doing everything in English, even if it's not your first language, you shut yourself off from so many possibilities. So a big part of what it means to be a humanist, somebody who does liberal arts, however you want to call it, is to do it in different languages. And that's not a, a chore. That's part of the fun. Enjoy it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For more information on our um, Coptic Magical Papyri project, please visit our website on www.coptic-magic.phil that is p-h-i-l dot uni u-n-i dash Wurzburg spelled w-u-e-r-z-b-u-r-g dot d-e It should um, pop up when you google Coptic Magical Papyri. Thank you very much for listening once again and see you next time.